to 20. You can find it on page 1, 2, 3, 3. And uh, it is regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We're going to look at this uh, really wonderful passage, uh, really meaty, uh, wonderful passage. Um, uh, it's, it's a passage I first heard uh, taught properly and faithfully at my first NTE. So I'm glad to hear that many of you went to NTE. My first NTE, I heard this passage by Philip Jensen, and, and it blew my mind. And my mind's still broken from that point, but it's a wonderful passage. Let's pray to our God that we might understand it rightly. Let's, let's join in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for making clear to us who the Lord Jesus is and who he is towards us. And so we pray that we might respond rightly toward him as the King and the Saviour. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is almost Christmas, isn't it? Christmas each year is always a wonderful time, and I suspect that many of us, we just expect and we naturally just expect that everyone will have a joyful Christmas but of course, here comes the irony of Christmas. And I'd like us to think about how strange Christmas is. Now, hopefully, we will all have a joyful Christmas and a wonderful Christmas. Uh, there's always a lot of food and presents and shopping at Chatson Shopping Centre. I mean, do you know Chatson, they've done it for a few years, they'll be open for 34 hours straight. That's just ridiculous. 30 minutes of shopping is enough for me, but 34 hours... But hopefully many of us will have a joyful time at Christmas. We had a bit of fun in my growth group this past Thursday. Uh, we do this as a tradition in our group. Our last growth group, we join and share and have a bit of Kris Kringle fun. And so for this year, we had a limit, a budget of $20 each. And it was a bit of fun. Someone in our group just ended up with a $20 uh, Coles gift card, which means I couldn't be bothered. Here you go, buy your own thing. <laughs> But I'm sure that's actually a worthwhile, and it's, it's worth $20 anyway. Uh, someone else ended up with a body lotion for stretch marks. <laughs> now, the one who got it, she's not pregnant. No one's pregnant in our group. Um, Yvonne's not pregnant as well. But anyway, that was a thoughtful gift. But hopefully many of us will have a joyful time at Christmas. But yet for many, Christmas will remain sad, and will remain a difficult time. There will be, of course, decorations and presents and crowded parties. But I suspect many, in fact, there are many, and perhaps even here, who will feel during Christmas time 
quite lonely inside, depressed, struggling with all of life's issues. And there's the irony of Christmas. It's not happy for everyone. Or Christmas. Christmas is meant to be a time of sharing and giving. But yet for many, Christmas is about just taking and receiving, especially our shopping centre bosses, taking and receiving. The irony of Christmas. You see, there's much irony to Christmas in our experience. But of course, the greatest irony of Christmas is what Christmas is about. Have you thought about that? The greatest irony of Christmas centers on the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about what you know about Christmas and how ironic it is. The mighty king of the universe would become a helpless babe. The wonderful saviour would bleed and die. The glorious irony of what we see at Christmas. And the passage tonight, hopefully, will blow your minds, just as it did mine many years ago at my first NTE conference. There's perhaps no passage like this in the Bible that gives us a bigger, greater, grander picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so here we see our first irony. The baby born at Christmas, we know about Christmas, the birth of Jesus. The baby born at Christmas, and perhaps in the mind of many people today, perhaps even in here, the only picture we have about Jesus in our mind is that cute, cuddly, chubby, blue-eyed, silent Jesus. You see, that baby is nothing less than the mighty king of the universe. In fact, he probably didn't have blue eyes anyway. Mighty king. Yet helpless babe. How ironic is that? A baby, but yet king at birth. That's also ironic. I mean, that's what we sing about in our carols, isn't it? A uh, uh, popular one, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Or hark now hear the angels sing. A king was born today. Even singing those words as you reflect on it, it should strike us as ironic. I mean, no one is born as king. If you're part of the royal family and you're born, you're not born as the monarch. You're born as a prince or princess. And so, for example, Queen Elizabeth II, when she was born, she was not born queen, but she was born Princess Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. She only became queen 25 years later. But Jesus, only one case of this, Jesus was born king. But yet, mighty king, yet helpless babe. But not just any king, of course. And certainly not just any baby. Have a look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15, we see, He is the image of the invisible God. Now the word image in the Greek is the word icon. He is the icon of God, which means he is the exact representation of God. We can't see God. God is invisible. God is spirit. But Jesus makes the invisible God visible to us. Jesus is God the Son in the flesh. That is how we know God exists. That is how we know God is true. And that is how we know what God is like. And so those who did see Jesus, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and his disciples who followed him later on, they saw God. And so the human quest throughout the centuries in search for God, well, that's no longer needed. We know what God is like. And so those who saw God, they saw what God is like 
in his character, and also in his attributes. They saw Jesus. He was loving and sacrificial and serving and caring and compassionate and gracious, but yet powerful and yet holy and perfect. And that is what God is like. To see Jesus is to see God. And that's why in our first reading, Jesus told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But there's the irony, isn't it? Mighty king yet helpless babe. But of course, not just any king and certainly not any baby. And we see more in this next bit. Verse 15 still. The firstborn over all creation. Now, some people get this wrong and think that Jesus was the first one to be born in creation, but that's not what it means at all. What it means is that the firstborn in the ancient world is the one who is heir, heir of the family, the first in rank, the one who is superior, the one who is supreme. And so if we were still living in ancient times, though Esther's my firstborn child, she would not be the heir. That would go to Caleb, my firstborn son. He would be the heir if we were still living in the ancient times. But of course, that's no longer the case. We love all our children equally, Ethan included. I said I'll mention him because they get a dollar each each time I mention them. So <laughs> Ethan didn't get a dollar this morning. But Caleb Prank can perhaps be the one who can still inherit my coffee machine. But anyway. But you see, that way of thinking still exists today. In the British royal family, if and when Prince Charles becomes king, he'll be lord over his siblings. I mean, I've never dared to get my brothers to call me lord and to bow down to me. That would never happen. But they'll have to. When Prince Charles becomes king, his brothers, Prince Andrew, Prince Edward, they will have to bow down to him. He's superior. He'll be first in rank. But here we're seeing Jesus is not just first in rank of a family. He's first in rank over all creation, superior and supreme over all creation, yet born in a manger. How ironic. He's the Lord of lords and King of kings, mighty king, yet helpless babe. But now understanding this of Jesus, it's actually about to get bigger as we follow along. Because what we're told now is, is that everything in all creation was made by him and for him. That's everything. And that's everyone. Have a look at verse 16 now. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, things like love. You can't, you can't see love. Jesus made that. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, the kings, the premiers, the prime ministers, the queens, the emperors, they were all made by him and for him. All things were created by him and for him. And so that includes the the billions of galaxies that stretch us into the universe. It goes on forever and ever. Have you tried to imagine that or fathom how large the universe is? It's just hard to imagine. But they were made for him, by him and for him, to the great Mount Everest that rises up across the Himalayas, to the great oceans that covers the sea, to the gigantic whales that glide through the oceans, to the majestic elephants that roam the Sahara, the mighty lions, they, they just sleep all day, to even the tiny mosquitoes made by Jesus, for Jesus. Now, I've always wondered why Jesus created the mosquitoes. I don't know what use there are. They suck blood and they give diseases. 
But perhaps it's just to keep us humans humble, that even the tiniest insect can irritate us so much. But even the molecules, the atoms, the electrons, protons, the quarks, all were made by him and for him. Now, how do you get your mind around that? Imagine you were the shepherds seeing this baby in the manger and to read this verse. That baby, this king of all, that baby and this creator. You see, there is not an inch in all of creation that Jesus does not claim and own, which means Jesus owns us. Jesus owns me and Jesus owns you. He made us, not for us, not for you, but for him. We are not self-made creatures. We were made by him and for him. A theologian from the 4th century, Augustine, he said this, You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. He's speaking of all humanity. God made us for him, Christ made us for him, and we will be restless until we find him. And so what that means is that all our longings, we all share this longing inside, our longings for lasting joy, our longings for genuine deep love, our longings for peace, our longings for real security, our longings for true justice, our longing for absolute truth, our longing for hope and eternal life. Where do you find that? You don't find that in this world. We don't find that amongst our friends. We don't find it by searching inside our brains. We don't find that by just feeling. We find all of that in Jesus Christ, the one for whom we were made for. See, we were not made, as people, we were not made for our careers. If I live for my career, it will enslave me or it will crush me. I mean, how many people do you know have been consumed by their jobs? They might do well, but yet their life is a mess. We were not made just to get wealthy and rich. I mean, if I live for my wealth and my bank account, it will own me and it will destroy me. I mean, how many people do you know who in their search for wealth never find contentment? And we were not made merely for human relationships. So if I just live for human relationships, eventually I'll be disappointed by it. How many of us have been disappointed by those we love? And we were not made for health, just to be healthy. If I live for my health, it will eventually fail me. How many healthy people do you know have cheated death? See, now these things, they're all good things. God gave them to us. They're all good things, but if they become the first thing, they become the bad thing. And that's because we were not made for these things. We were not made for ourselves. We were made for Christ. And so until I find Christ and Christ becomes first in my life, my heart will be restless till then. But then more than making us for him, to amplify his greatness even more, what we learn here, he continues to sustain all the universe, all creation, everything. He holds everything together. He gives everything life, every atom, every cell. He upholds it all. And so we see that in verse 17. He is before all things. That is, he's eternal. 
stretches into eternity, he was already there. He did not just start to exist at his birth. He is eternal. And in him, all things hold together. And so why is it that the sun each day, like clockwork, rises over the east? That way. No, that way. That way. That way. That way. East. (laughs) I know my compass. That way. Rises over the east from our perspective and sets over in the west. Why is it that that happens? Why is it that the earth continues to rotate on its axis and orbit around the sun? Why is it that the rain falls and waters the ground and gives life? Why is it that you and me can sit here or stand here, breathe and live? Why? It is because Jesus holds it all together. You see, if Jesus was to stop working even just for a second, if he was to stop upholding us even for a second, life would stop in an instant. It would stop completely. We would cease to exist. That is how dependent all creation is on him. And who is he? The irony. Mighty king, yet helpless babe. The irony of Christmas. Just to think that our entire existence depended on this child who was born. But now we come to see the second irony. Wonderful saviour, yet he bled and died. Saviour by dying. That's ironic. I mean, each time the search and rescue helicopter goes out, you're not expecting someone to die to save someone else. You hope that the pilot and all the rescue team will come back alive with those they were saving. But yet here, Jesus is saviour by dying. Saviour by giving up his own life. He's a saviour, and that's why here we read, he's called the head of the church. Now have a look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Now, after we've just seen in those few verses uh, before this, this might sound a bit anticlimactic. I mean, we were just told he's the creator of the whole universe. I mean, why would he want to be the head of this place? Why would he want to be the head of the church? I mean, the church is a nice place. We see each other each week. There are nice smiles and we've got nice suppers, depending on who's organising it. But tonight there's good pies, I hear. But who wants to be the head of this place? I mean, what's so good about being the head of this? Well, it is because the only group of people, the only institution that will last into eternity, it's not the local cricket club. That won't be there. Maybe cricket won't even be there in heaven. It's just a boring game, but anyway. (laughs) It won't be the great multinationals, BHP, Apple, Telsha. They won't be there. Not even the great empires. They come and go, the great nations. Australia won't matter in eternity. America won't matter in eternity. They won't all matter. But what will matter are the people of God, the body of Christ, the church. That is the only thing that will last beyond the grave into eternity. And Jesus is the head of that. And that's why we read in verse 18 now. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And so we've already read in this creation, the world in which we live, all that we see and feel and hear, he is supreme. He is first in rank. 
He has supremacy. But now what this verse is telling us is that in the new creation, those who will live on forever in, it, in heaven with God for eternity, in the new creation, he is also supreme there. He is also first in rank there. Jesus, you see, not only came to us, but he came, he died, and he came back to life. And when he did, he defeated death itself. Death could not grasp its hold on him. And when he did do that, when he came back from the dead, he guarantees eternal life to those who belong to him. And that changed the whole course of human history. It changed the whole course of the future of humanity. You see, how do we know there's something beyond the grave? How do we know that when you die, there's actually something more? Well, one man in human history came back from the dead. Jesus was raised, and he is supreme over this creation and also the new creation. See, Jesus was born as king so that he might become saviour. But do you see the irony? Saviour by dying. To save us, it required him to bleed and to die. And that's what we see in our final verses. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. That is, Jesus is God in the flesh, nothing less. When you see Jesus, you see God. And through him, that is Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things, uh, things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And there's the irony. Wonderful saviour, the one in whom God was pleased to have his fullness dwell the one who is the son of God. But yet, he bled and died. He's the exact representation of God. But yet, he bled and died. Not meaninglessly, but for a purpose. To bridge the gulf between God and us. To bring peace between God and us. And what did it cost? It cost him his life. His blood shed on the cross. See, that's the whole point of Christmas. He came to die in our place to bring us back to God, to grant us peace with God. And he's the saviour by dying. Now, see, this peace with God, we really have to try to appreciate. It's not fuzzy-wuzzy peace, the peace you feel inside like Kung Fu Panda. It's real peace with God that will be lasting. I mean, just to give you a glimpse of what good peace might look like. During World War I, the Western Front in Europe was where the fighting was fiercest between the British and German soldiers. Thousands were being killed. It was brutal. But around Christmas of that first year of the war, Christmas of 1914, there was this great surprise during the war. No one expected this. There was a series of widespread ceasefires along the front. About 100,000 British and German soldiers were involved in an unofficial ceasefire. I mean, they, they were enemies. They were meant to go and kill each other. But instead, they put down their guns and grenades. And instead, the Germans, they placed candles along their stretches. And they sang Christmas carols in German. And the British, what did they do? Well, they responded by singing carols of their own. And the two continued to shout Christmas greetings at each other. I mean, they were meant to kill each other, but yet that Christmas they did that. 
And soon after, they even went across no man's land. That was the place where thousands were killed. And they exchanged gifts like food and souvenir and tobacco. And they even played football matches together. That Christmas, the two enemies enjoyed peace. Wonderful picture, isn't it? Warms your heart. But of course, that fighting did resume. They went on killing each other, and the war went on for another four years. But you see, the peace that God grants with us, the peace that Jesus won for us with God, is everlasting peace. Peace with our Maker. A peace which means I'm no longer a rebel, an enemy of God, but His child. And I can live and die with that confidence. The day I die and face the Lord, I face him as not judge, but father. And it's a peace which means I'll escape his judgment because Jesus has paid for it already. And it's a peace which means I'll enjoy resurrection life, eternal, eternal life following Jesus, who was the firstborn from among the dead. But it's ironic, isn't it? Wonderful saviour, but it required him to bleed and die. The irony of Christmas, mighty king yet helpless babe, wonderful saviour yet bled and died. And so what difference do you think that makes? If it's true, well, if it's true, it changes everything. It changes not just Christmas. It changes our entire life. It changes our complete existence. Where do we find purpose? Not soul-searching, not finding it myself, not thinking it, not dreaming it. He is my purpose. I'm made for him. What is my future? Where am I going? Well, he becomes my future. The whole universe revolves around Jesus. It's no wonder why Queen Elizabeth II, she's a Christian woman, one who loves the Lord Jesus, Last year, when she turned 90, there was a tribute written for her 90th birthday. And the book was titled this, The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. I mean, she's as high up as she can get in British society. The, the, amongst the elite in the world, you can't just be queen if you want it. She's queen. She's the longest reigning British monarch. But yet she lives acknowledging that there is a king above her, that Christ is that king above her. In fact, it's not a new thing. She was really just following in the footsteps of her great-great-grandmother, Queen, anyone know? Queen Victoria. During Queen Victoria's reign, she ruled over a third of the world. They were an empire then. But she said this once. Queen Victoria said, she could not wait to meet Jesus. And why? Well, she said, so that I can cast my crown before him. And she recognised that baby Jesus born that first Christmas is no ordinary baby at all, but the king of the universe and certainly the king of her, the one who deserves everything, even her crown. And so what about us? What about your life? Now, I suspect during this time, especially during this time around Christmas, we prefer to keep Jesus in the manger. Because there he's helpless, he's cute, he's a cuddly baby. Just keep him there. 
Because if Jesus is just a baby in our mind, then we can tell him what to do. And we can just come to him when we want him and when we need him. We see this quite often. When do people turn to Jesus? When they are in need. When they are in desperate need. When they are sick. When there's a problem. Okay, Jesus, I think I need you now. It's about time. I mean, we don't even like that when our friends treat us that way. But that's okay to treat the king of the universe that way? Or do we wish that Jesus never grew up? It's easier for us if Jesus never grew up to never teach and never challenge us to follow him as king, to challenge us to lay down our lives and to carry our cross and follow him. He is the king, to give him first allegiance, even above our families, and to cast any crown that we may have placed on ourselves and lay it before him as the true king. You see, though it might be ironic, mighty king yet helpless babe, we must not get confused. He is nothing less than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He owns you. Whether we believe that or not, he owns you and he owns me. Now, I suspect that many of us here tonight already believe this. But I wonder how consistent we are in how we live, if that is what we believe. If Jesus is really the one who made me for him, then is that reflected in my life, in my small daily decisions, in my big life decisions? And so if I look at your life, or if you look at my life, and you see how I spend my time and how I invest my energy, does it look like that Jesus is really king of my life? Does it look like I'm bearing my cross and following him as king? Does it look like I live like I belong to him? I mean, if he is king, then he's king not just in heaven in the future, he's king now. I always find it encouraging when I read and hear of stories of Christians, faithful Christians who believe what they read here in Colossians and how they live with Jesus as king. Uh, there's this family our family knows, Yvonne and myself, we know. It's a, they're a wonderful family. It's a family with four boys in school. Busy household. We've been to their place before. Busy household. The father, super impressive, super busy, very high up in the corporate world. But when he moved up the corporate ladder, never stopped his commitment in loving God and loving the church. He's an elder of his church, keeps on serving, does not skip a meeting, runs the men's ministry there. Each, each Easter, what they do for the church, they invite the entire church over to their place for Easter. I mean, that's wonderful hospitality. And, and recently we heard they're considering now fostering or adopting another child so that they can be a blessing to more. I'm thinking, mate... I'm, we're barely handling three kids, and they're wonderful kids. They've got four boys, and they want to be a blessing to more. I mean, they're really living their lives with Christ as king. There's another family, one that you may have heard of, a famous one. They don't want to be famous, but they are. Francis and Lisa Chan. He used to be a mega church pastor, a successful author. Now, for their 20th anniversary we share this as we uh, did our marriage counseling courses this year to a couple for their 20th anniversary 
What do you think normal couples would do on their 20th anniversary? Well, let's go to Hawaii or Fiji or Bora Bora or, you know, Shepparton, if that's, that's, that works for some. But instead, for their 20th anniversary, they wanted to do something where they were serving together, serving their king together. And so Lisa said to Francis, well, let's go somewhere crazy. Do you know where they ended? They went to East Africa for their honeymoon to visit a ministry they've been supporting, starving children with bloated tummies because they don't have enough to eat. Women sold into prostitution, far away from the five-star hotel. And when I heard and saw that story, it convicted me. Gave me an idea for our next anniversary. I'm not sure if everyone wants to, please, but gave me an idea, but it certainly convicted me. I mean, they're not, not using their life for themselves, and they're not just using their working life for Christ, but their holidays for Christ. You look at their life, Jesus is clearly king. He's, in fact, made millions from the royalties, from the books he's sold, but he's given them all away. Christ is really king of that family. And if Jesus is truly king of the universe, and he is, is that seen in our life? Is that seen in your life? Here's a challenge for you. How radical can you be in your obedience? Not the rest of your life, just think about up to Christmas. How radical can you be in your obedience? How radical can you be in your love? How radical can you be in your generosity this Christmas? Now, we find it hard to teach generosity. We obviously try to be generous. But in our family, we do this because we want our kids growing up being generous people. Each year at Christmas, as a family, we get the compassion catalogue and we get our children and they have to give in their own money and they have to sort of like auction how much you're going to give and we're trying to raise them. But then we can buy goats and pigs and cows and toilets for those who are desperately in need. How radical can you be in your obedience if Jesus is king? How radical can you be in your love if Jesus is king? How radical can you be in your generosity if Jesus is king? But of course, Jesus is not just king. He is the one and only saviour. Saviour by dying. And if my king was willing to die for me, then how foolish of me to turn to my career as my saviour. I mean, that's not going to give me worth and identity. How silly of me to think that my money will save me. That will not last beyond the grave. That's not going to help me when I meet God, and that's not going to give me any genuine sense of security. How petty of me to think that my successes in life will save me, like that's going to please God anyway. And how idiotic of me to even consider... When life is difficult, when it's painful and depressing, that Christ has stopped loving me. It's idiotic to think that way. I mean, just this morning I had a chat with, with a person after our morning service. And, she, and that person was in tears, going through a very difficult time. And that person needed to hear this. In all that you're going through, Jesus is still king. He has not stopped loving you. 
he has become your saviour by dying for you. I mean, if Jesus is both this king and this saviour, is that what you believe in your heart? And is that what is reflected in your life, especially if you call yourself a Christian? Because if we understand this, the mighty king is my king. And so I live not for me, but I live for him. The wonderful saviour is my saviour. And so I trust my life not to me, not to others, not to anything, but I trust my life to him. You see, if we understand and believe that, then there's no irony in life at all because I am being who I'm meant to be. The king of the universe is my king. The Christ of Christmas is my saviour. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful kindness in making clear to us these few verses that shows us how exalted Christ is, the king over all creation, but yet the one who would stoop down as a helpless baby to be our saviour by dying. And so we pray that you'll be convicting our hearts, challenging us in our obedience, in our love, in our generosity this Christmas. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.